This is the second episode in a series of five episodes. If you haven't already, go back and listen to the first episode of Escaping Limbo now to get up to speed with Mustafa's story. Leading us, a flood of, it's better to say, a cattle of robots, officers. They came to our room many times, like six o'clock in the morning. They woke up us, police came inside. We are gonna search your room. Search what? We are gonna see, do you have any guns or any weapons? We are gonna check, do you have any? Actually, they wanted to find if there is any phone because we were not allowed to have a phone. And then they smashed everything. We didn't have anything. Even they threw out the books, everything. They destroyed all our belongings. And when we came back to the room, there was nothing and lots of complaints and lots of requests. But who, who's going to listen to their requests and complaints? I In 2017, an Australian judge found that Mustafa's claim to political asylum is legitimate. Moz has a right under international law to be protected by Australia. But because he arrived under the Rudd government's P&G solution, he was told he would never come to Australia. Australia is the only country in the world that locks up refugees in foreign prisons. This is Escaping Limbo. So how did Moz get here? What led up to Australia deciding to imprison a legitimate refugee in a foreign prison with no charge and no hope of release? What made us abandon our commitments to international law and human decency? The truth is, Moz arrived at a pivotal moment in Australian border policy. That year, 2013, arrivals by boat were the highest they've ever been in Australian history. But to understand what led up to that surge in boat arrivals, we need to go back to 1999. For the past 50 years, the number of asylum seekers arriving by boat had never exceeded 1,000 people in any given year. But at the turn of the century, dozens of boats carrying thousands of people were washing up on Australian shores. It was the biggest surge in arrivals since World War II. Australians grew worried about the impact these arrivals might have on security and the economy. And nothing the Australian government did seemed to be capable of stopping the boats. In 2001, more than 5,000 people made the journey to Australia by boat to seek asylum. In late August that year, the MV Tampa, a Norwegian container ship, strayed from their assigned route from Perth to Singapore to respond to a mayday call by Australian officials. A small Indonesian fishing boat, believed to be carrying more than 80 souls, was sinking in the Indian Ocean, six hours from the nearest port. The MV Tampa rescued over 400 Muslim asylum seekers from that boat and requested permission to re-enter Australian waters and deliver them to safety. But the Australian government refused, and even threatened to prosecute the captain of the MV Tampa for people smuggling if they disobeyed. And we've indicated to the captain 
the permission to land in Australia will not be granted to this vessel, Mr Speaker. Asylum seekers on the Tampa heard this message from the Australian government on a radio they'd smuggled onto the ship. We are not a soft touch and we are not a nation whose sovereign rights in relation to who comes here are going to be trampled on. In protest, they went on hunger strike. A few on board were already severely unwell, so the Norwegian captain declared a state of emergency and entered Australian waters to deliver them to Christmas Island. In response, the SAS, an elite unit of the Australian military, boarded the MV Tampa and ordered them to turn around. Stop, stay there, stay there! Put your hands on the team, now! Norwegian officials accused the Australian government of breaking international law and violating human rights by failing to rescue the asylum seekers. But the Australian government led by then Prime Minister John Howard, was responding to an electorate that was increasingly hostile toward immigration. Less than 30 years earlier, the White Australia policy saw non-European immigration and multiculturalism banned. Now, Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party was gaining traction on a platform of white nationalism, and many believe the Howard government wanted to capitalise on right-wing populism. I have been outspoken and I am against Islam in Australia. I believe. The Howard government's rabid response to the Tampa affair was met with resounding support from the Australian public. Soon after, the Howard government introduced the Pacific Solution. The military would now intercept any unscheduled boat coming to Australia and redirect those on board to island nations where they would endure long detentions. Despite the inherent cruelty of the policy, it gained bipartisan support. The Pacific Solution saw thousands of refugees taken to brand new offshore detention centres like Nauru or Manus Island, where Moz was taken in 2013. The first 400 asylum seekers to be taken to one of those detention centres were those rescued by the MV Tampa. A few weeks after the Tampa affair, 9-11 happened and the threat of Islamic extremism entered the asylum seeker debate. Fast forward to October, a few months before the 2001 federal election, and another scandal rocked the nation. A number of people have jumped overboard um, and have had to be rescued. Um, more disturbingly, a number of children have been thrown overboard. Prime Minister Howard and his senior cabinet ministers accused asylum seekers of intentionally throwing their children overboard so that they could be rescued by the Australian Navy. There's something to me incompatible between somebody who claims to be a refugee and somebody who would throw their own child into the sea. It, it offends the natural instinct of protection. The Howard government campaigned hard on the issue of boat arrivals, spruiking its harsh Pacific solution as the answer. The fundamental right of this country to protect its borders. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. By November, Howard was returned for a third term. In 2004, a Senate Select Committee into the Children Overboard Affair found no evidence that children were thrown overboard. The photographs of children in the water were in fact taken after the vessel had sunk, the committee found. Children overboard 
was a farce. Over the next few years, the pendulum of public opinion began to swing in the other direction. In 2007, Kevin Rudd and a Labour government were elected into office, promising to repeal the Pacific Solution. That year, just 148 people arrived by boat to seek asylum in Australia. By 2012, that number was over 17,000, and the pendulum of public opinion swung back again. Some breaking news now, an emergency crews are responding to reports an asylum seeker boat is in trouble near Christmas, Christmas Island. Island. It's believed more than 70 people were on board the vessel, which ran into wild weather. The is continuing reaching. tonight on remote Christmas Island, where at least 27 asylum seekers have lost their lives. Their crippled boat Two people are confirmed well. dead and others are critically hurt in the latest asylum seeker tragedy. In the latest asylum seeker tragedy, a baby boy is dead and eight other people are missing in waters near Christmas Island. Under immense public pressure, the Rudd government reopened the Manus Island Detention Centre. Look, it's really, really hard and you've got to somehow try and strike a balance between maintaining your own humanity and the humanity of the country and its reasonableness and its morality and then also not provoking a huge swell of demand for people smuggling services. Lachlan Harris was media advisor to Kevin Rudd at the time. He was in the room when Rudd made the decision to reopen offshore detention facilities. Howard went too far one way, we probably took it too far back the other, and slowly but surely you're looking to sort of thread the needle through those two very complex and very difficult considerations which you have to balance. When Moz arrived in 2013, he was one of over 20,000 boat arrivals. He was also subject to the Regional Resettlement Agreement between Australia and Papua New Guinea, also known as the PNG Solution. Expansion of our regional arrangements sends a clear message that coming to Australia by boat is not the way to gain Australian residency. Those detained on Manus Island would never be allowed the chance to settle in Australia. If you are seeking to take the dangerous passage by boat, my message as Prime Minister of Australia is simply this, don't. Don't believe the lies this has been the message to Moz from every government since. I think people are concerned. I think at the heart of that is a reasonable and rational concern about protecting a, a, a way of life and a, and a, and a kind of a nice sense of identity that's important to people in Australia. Does that then get exaggerated and manipulated by people that want to take advantage of it in a really terrible way, yes. But there isn't one side that's the good side and one side that's the bad side. In 2014, Scott Morrison, who was then the Immigration Minister, attended the Manus Island Detention Centre to tell asylum seekers in person that the new government would not allow them to settle in Australia. And he came to the detention and said that you will never ever be resettled in Australia. Don't play with your lives. You have been brought to this place here because you have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. If you have a valid claim, you will not be resettled in Australia. You will never live in Australia. If you are found... This led some officials to blame Scott Morrison for provoking the February riots which left one asylum seeker killed and 70 more injured. 
they provoke this is the system that they provoke us to be angry what was once called the pacific solution was then called operation sovereign borders the same name it has today In talking at length with Moz and becoming fully aware of the circumstances at hand, I kept coming back to the question, how has this happened? How did we, a nation built on opportunity and freedom of expression with undeniable multicultural foundations, commit such injustices? And how have we, the electorate as a whole, bore witness to these injustices and allowed their continuation? Mm. And how did it feel knowing that you're a member of the Australian electorate? Yeah, I found myself disoriented in the realisation of the horrors at play. I felt visceral anger at our nation's irreconcilable value system. And then I felt guilty for my own freedom, like I had too much of it and I wanted to give some away. Freud calls this a state of mourning. It arises when an individual takes time to grieve and truly process the consequences of painful situations. Mourning allows the individual to recover. And is that what most Australians do? Not exactly. It's remarkably easier to do one of two things. Many seem to entirely ignore the cruel treatment of refugees, or they follow a sequence of awareness, disgust and powerlessness to eventually end up in a state of blissful ignorance, as it's too distressing to face this disaster head on. This is the antithesis of mourning, and Freud called it a state of melancholia. Okay, so mourning seems like the natural and healthy reaction to the horror of how we treat refugees. So how does melancholia relate? Yeah, so Julie Macken, who you met last episode, has drawn links between Freud's psychoanalysis about mourning and melancholia and the Australian government's treatment of refugees. Mm. So just to give a bit of background about Julie, she was working as a journalist prior to writing this paper on melancholia. And while she was at the Australian Financial Review, she attended a press conference where senior medicos said Australia was guilty of the state-sanctioned torture of refugees. When she brought that story to her editor, he said, No paper I edit will ever run a story like that. Australia doesn't torture people. It's not who we are. Mm, And this formed the basis of her question, how did we become a nation who tortures refugees? This won't provide all the answers, and by no means do I intend to oversimplify the issue, but the presence of melancholia in our leaders and our nation as a whole is certainly an apt place to begin. The origins of this theory can be traced back to the culturally driven collective guilt for the crimes committed against Indigenous Australians during the White Australia period. This is where the national denial began. First is I I do not believe as an issue of principle that one generation can assume responsibility for the acts and deeds of an earlier generation. Howard steadfastly refused to make a formal apology on behalf of the government. He took no responsibility for tearing hundreds of thousands of Aboriginal children from their families for a century up until the late 1960s. 
His past is a past full of good people. And then there are the bad historians in the present who are wanting to attack that idealised past. Okay. So how is the treatment of Aboriginal people related to the treatment of refugees? Well, now we arrive at a juncture where the nation is left with unresolved guilt and Julie Macken asks, what was to be done with the pain and knowledge of harm done by white Australia? Where would this shameful cargo go and who would carry it? The answer is the refugees. And as a consequence of that denial, there was a retreat into melancholia. Okay, so according to this theory, Australia has justified the horrific things we've done to refugees because we've never faced up to the way we treated Indigenous people and other non-white ethnic groups. And because we've never acknowledged these gross injustices in our past, we never accepted that we're capable of gross injustices. That's right. And melancholia is so disruptive that Freud says the individual experiences an impoverishment of his ego on a grand scale. And due to this impoverishment, he looks for someone to blame for his state of torment. The individual, in this case the political elite, depends on an infantilised version of splitting, where the nation attempts to defend against the complexity of the world and its people by splitting the world into wholly good people and wholly bad people. You will be a shallow, superficial, vapid spinmeister who understands little, who is consumed with narcissism and is in need of someone to blame because you will split your own internal psyche. Julie says this cognitive dissonance may have contributed to the nation's willingness to believe that women and men were throwing their babies overboard. The question of who should carry the undone work of mourning for white Australia was finally answered on the 26th of August 2001. That was the day the MV Tampa picked up those refugees. Exactly. And with the induction of the Pacific Solution, the names of those people seeking Australia's protection were removed and replaced with numbers. The work of demonising these people was already well underway. The government's negative tenor was constant during this period. I don't want in Australia people who would throw their own children into the sea. I don't. I regard these as some of the most disturbing practices that I have uh, that I have come across in the For time. people who travel illegally by boat to Australia. We cannot allow bad people to use our good nature against us. Rapists, pedophiles, murderers might come in. Have you yet established whether any have? I think there are some people that have come of bad character. A 2003 study from Media International Australia found that 90% of the Howard government's portrayal of asylum seekers was negative. The words most used to describe refugees were illegitimate, illegal and threatening. What follows is the majority of the electorate also revert to the primitive and defensive split position to create a good, compassionate and generous Australia to the bad, manipulative refugees. Here are some actual opinions we found on Twitter. You're literally putting ISIS fighters in four-star hotels and giving them legal aid. The boat people can't join an orderly queue. What about genuine asylum seekers who followed our legal process? If only the government did something for our own homeless rather than falling over themselves to help the boat people. Most of them are economic refugees. These people tried to cheat the system, there's no doubt about it. I don't want losers, murderers, malingerers, cheats, thieves and scum coming to Australia on a fishing boat. 
the Australian voters fell straight into the government's playbook. Officials gave the policy euphemistic names and claimed it was not only justified, but honourable because it prevented asylum seekers from drowning at sea. They insulated the Australian public from the guilt of torturing refugees by denying the atrocities of the past and burying responsibility in an ocean of bureaucracy. They dehumanised and demonised asylum seekers, giving them numbers instead of names, accusing them of doing terrible things, and flipping their legal right to asylum on its head by calling them illegal immigrants. And then they criminalised criticism of the policy and tried to hide the evidence of their abuse. On the next episode of Escaping Limbo, the gates of the Manus Island Detention Centre were opened to asylum seekers for the first time. 600 men who decided to stay in the camp were left without food, power and water. A new coalition government introduced Operation Sovereign Wars, Australia's military-led operation to combat people smuggling, which begin shrouding the program in a veil of secrecy. Anybody who tells you that people on Manus and Nauru haven't been provided with the best medical assistance possible are lying to you. The doctors were really just there to make the torture and mistreatment of refugees look legitimate and respectable. We have people that can come to our country from Manus or Nauru, uh, people that have been charged with child sex offences, people that have been charged... Uh, this is the same government who had threatened whistleblowers with jail. And here we are. Large groups of refugees are still held in hotels 19 months later. Escaping Limbo is produced by Warwick Jones and presented by me, Jacqueline Stanley. Theme music is by Mustafa Azimutabar. And a special thanks to Tito and Janik.